I was hooked by the first line of Beyond Revenge, a book by the research psychologist Michael McCullough. What he's learning, he said, is for people who want to bypass all of the pious-sounding statements about the power of forgiveness and all of the fruitless sermonizing about the destructiveness of revenge. Both revenge and forgiveness, he says, have their purpose in human biology and history. But from neighborhood arguments to civil wars, Michael McCullough's science is showing how we can make forgiveness more possible and appealing. Some of the baggage is that it's a namby-pamby thing that doormats do, or, but from everything I've managed to read and see and understand, forgiveness is a brawny, muscular exercise that I kind of imagine someone with a great passion for life and a great hearty sort of disposition being able to take on. Getting Revenge and Forgiveness. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Michael McCullough directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory at the University of Miami. He works with social scientific research as well as emerging discoveries in biology and brain chemistry. His focus on the biology of revenge and forgiveness has taken him into other related areas of human moral sentiments, gratitude, and self-control. I interviewed Michael McCullough in 2008, just after he'd published Beyond Revenge. I think one of the important themes that comes through that I just, you know, I think it's important for us to talk about to lay the groundwork for what you have to say, what you're learning, is that we, lay people, citizens, uh, consumers of science and journalism, have to open our imaginations to think in new ways about subjects like revenge and forgiveness, that there are certain boxes into which we've put these things. That's right. One of the things that got me writing Beyond Revenge, actually, was a dissatisfaction with the kind of boxes that we all tend to put mm-hmm. revenge and forgiveness in as human dispositions. So if you turn on the news, you see certainly senseless acts of revenge. Um, but we don't really know what to do with those once we see those acts. What are the stories we tell ourselves about what causes those acts? Um, what kind of judgments do we pass about the people who commit them? Um, do we demonize them? Do we call them animals? Those, I think, do tend to be the kind of conclusions we draw. And the more I read and the more I tried to dig deeply into not just the social sciences but also the biological sciences, as you say, the worse that story really seemed to fit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As it seems to me, revenge is much more deeply etched into the human mind than than those kind of stories would suggest. Right. Um Right. I want to try to understand this because you really talk about two different kind of preconceptions, or I can't tell if they're different or if they converge and I just don't get it. On the one hand, there's this idea, you know, that human nature really is brutish and that positive characteristics like generosity and love and forgiveness are exceptions to human nature. And then on the other hand, there is the disease model of revenge, um, Mm -hmm. Which is more compatible with the way religious uh, traditions tend to think about revenge in the modern era, at least, um, and kind of the therapeutic model. Now, do those ways of thinking come together or do they both, do they form us at the same time? 
Yeah. Here, here's what I, I think we're up against. Okay. If you go back to the Greek tragedies, what you see the Greeks grappling with is why revenge is so disruptive to their efforts to establish social order. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. See, and you know, you have you have these amazing stories, right? Uh, Medea, she's so angry at her husband for his his unfaithfulness to her that she destroys her own children, right, as a way of trying to get back at him, and and so it goes on and on throughout these great works of Western literature. Mm-hmm. I think what we tend to think from these these images, which of course trickle into you know more popular. Media, right? And there's uh, a Lord movie, of the movies Flies, and novels and West so, Side Story, or some of the ones you mentioned. There, of, of course, of, yeah. Mad Max. Um, let's see, uh, Death Wish. You know, right, and, right. and and on and on and on. Uh, is that re- revenge is a is a curse or a disease or some kind of poison that gets into minds and um, sort of takes control of them and then mm-hmm. wrecks individuals and wrecks societies and wrecks families then that affects how you think about what forgiveness is as well. Right. And so I think the thing that we tend to assume about forgiveness is that it's a cure, right? That, that mm-hmm. someone came along, some, some Einstein of the moral realm, some wonderfully wise person in history, and discovered how powerful forgiveness could be as an antidote to this toxin or this poison. Right. And so we're left really, I think, now thinking about revenge and forgiveness as, in the case of revenge, something gone wrong in humanity and forgiveness being the thing we have to learn to do because we don't know how to do it naturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so one of the things you seem to be about is reclaiming the normalcy of both revenge and uh, forgiveness as a part of human nature. Um, I mean, I'd like to talk about revenge first, if we could, and, and why revenge is in us and what purpose it has served, even in evolutionary terms. One study that really got my attention was a study on chimpanzees, which showed that if a chimpanzee is harmed by an individual that it's living with, it has the ability to remember who that individual is and target aggression back at that individual in the 10 minutes, 20 minutes, hour later. And for most people, and certainly for me when I started working on this, I was surprised to know that chimpanzees had these kinds of mental abilities, right? Mm -hmm. I had to learn more. And I I wanted to know, where else do you see this in the animal kingdom? You see it in other kinds of uh, primates, such as one type of monkey that I like a lot, a monkey called the Japanese macaque. Okay. And Japanese macaques are very status-conscious individuals. They're very intimidated by power. Let's just put it that way. They're very intimidated by power. So if you're a high-ranking Japanese macaque and you harm a low-ranking Japanese macaque, that low-ranking individual is not going to harm you back, right? It's just too intimidating. It's too anxiety-provoking. But what they do instead, and this still astonishes me, is they will find a relative of that high-ranking individual and go seek that low-ranking cousin out or nephew and harm him in retaliation. Yeah. So it's as if they're saying, you know, I'm not powerful enough to get you back, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go harm your nephew. Now, that does sound like human behavior, doesn't it? Right. And, and, Uh And here's the kicker is when they're harming this nephew, right, 
most of the time they're doing it while the high-ranking individual is watching. They want the high-ranking individual to know that, you know, you can harm me. I know you can harm me. I know you're more powerful than I am. But rest assured, I know how to get at what you care about and what you value. You know, um, I had this realization a few years ago when we did a program on the death penalty. And it might seem simple, but it seems so stunning to me to to realize that the criminal justice system and, and even and especially the death penalty in history was progress because before there was any kind of criminal justice system, uh, human societies regulated themselves by precisely that kind of revenge you're, you're describing. Throughout most of human history, uh, we have not lived in complex societies with governments and states and law enforcement and prisons and right. contracts that we could enforce in a court to to get people to do what they agreed to do. So the mechanism that individuals relied upon to protect themselves and to protect their loved ones and to protect their property was fear of retaliation. And if they could broadcast that fear of retaliation to the individuals they lived with, to their neighbors, to the people on the other side of the hill, and you could cultivate a reputation as a hothead so people knew not to mess with you, that was like an insurance policy. And you're absolutely right that in a lot of the world, this is still (laughs) on. Right. And anytime you disrupt that system of government, that system of policing, that system of law enforcement, so people can't trust that their interests are going to be protected, that desire for revenge comes back and people will take revenge back into their own hands to protect themselves. And I think you're also saying in your research that, and also in terms of what we know about the brain, that the the emotions, the reactions that arise in response to grievance... um, Mm -hmm are also, we are hardwired to have those reactions, that they serve a purpose. I mean, I remember Sister Helen Prejean saying to me when we did that work on death penalty, and you know, she's a great opponent of the death penalty, but she said, you know, anger is a moral response, you know? That's right. <laughs> it certainly is. Anger in response to injustice is as reliable a human emotional response as happiness is to winning the lottery or grief is to losing a loved one. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the brain of somebody who has just been harmed by someone, right, they've been ridiculed or harassed or insulted, we can put those people into technology that allows us to see what their brains are doing, right? So we can look at sort of what your brain looks like on revenge. It looks exactly like the brain of somebody who is thirsty and is just about to get a sweet drink to drink, hmm. or somebody who's hungry, who's about to get a piece of chocolate to eat. It's like the satisfaction of a craving. It is exactly like that. It, it is literally a craving. Hmm. What you see is a high activation in the brain's reward system. So the desire for revenge does not come from some sick, dark part of how our minds operate. Mm-hmm. It is a craving to solve a problem and accomplish a goal. You know I caught him messing around with a 
And then I guess what is especially intriguing about your work as well, and perhaps more, even more surprising, even kind of takes us out of our boxes um, than the fact that revenge is natural, is that you are really suggesting also from a scientific perspective that that we have a forgiveness instinct, an aptitude for forgiveness, and that that has been crafted by natural selection just like revenge. I expected to find, frankly, less research as I dug through hundreds of scientific articles on the naturalness of forgiveness. But boy, was I wrong. As it turns out, a lot of biologists have been trying to figure out what allows human beings to be the cooperative creatures that we are. We're cooperative with each other in a way that really makes us pretty unique among mammals for sure. You know, we cooperate with our relatives. Lots of animals do that. But we, we go further and we cooperate with people we've never met. We cooperate with people um, that we're not related to. And by virtue of our abilities to cooperate with each other, we've, we can build magnificent cities and radio stations and do all kinds of wonderful things. But one of the ingredients you have to have to get individuals to cooperate with each other is a tolerance for mistakes. Okay? Hmm, interesting. You can't mm-hmm. get organisms that are willing to hang in there with each other through thick and thin and make good things happen despite the roadblocks and the, and the bumps along the way if they aren't willing to tolerate each other's mistakes. Hmm. Sometimes if we're cooperatively hunting, let's say we're, we're some sort of animal that, that works together to hunt, sometimes I'm going to let you down. And it, maybe it's not even intentional, but I'm going to get distracted and I'm going to make a mistake. And if you take each of those mistakes as the last word about my cooperative disposition, you might just give up. And so no cooperation gets done. So... Really, our ability, and, and across the animal kingdom, many animals' ability to cooperate with each other and make things happen that they can't do on their own is undergirded by an ability to forgive each other for occasional defections and mistakes. Here's a, a passage from your book, which, I again, a lot of this just seems so basic, doesn't it, when you when you articulate it, but it's things we don't see or think about. I mean, you, you know, you said that everyday acts of forgiveness are incredibly common among people who know each other, um, right. that, you know, we think of forgiveness as these heroic acts, and there are always these heroic examples of forgiveness, but you said, we think of it as this balm for great wounds, but you said, yet in daily life, forgiveness is more often like a Band-Aid on a scrape, and at first glance, perhaps only slightly more interesting, but of course, uninteresting doesn't mean unimportant. Right, and that this, again, was part of my attempt to do violence, I guess, to this metaphor of forgiveness as this difficult thing that we have to consciously practice and learn um, because we don't know how to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. I forgive my seven-year-old son every day, <laughs> right? Um, right? Because he's an active, inquisitive seven-year-old who sometimes accidentally elbows me in the mouth when we're cuddling and sometimes puts crayons on the walls. And and yet it seems demeaning to call it to even forgiveness. call it forgiveness, right? right? I, I, I wouldn't dignify it with the term forgiveness. It's just what you do with your children, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You, you accept their limitations and, and you move on. Um, he broke my tooth once when I was drinking out of a water glass. <laughs> right, you know, I mean, right. parents have a million of these stories, right. right? But you don't put any effort into forgiving. It naturally happens and you move on. 
And there's a great evolutionary story about why it comes so easy in those kind of circumstances, too. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty obvious, I guess. Yeah. I mean, evolution wasn't kind to individuals who would seek revenge against their genetic relatives. Bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this natural tolerance for the misbehavior of our children. So it is, at, at that level you're talking about, incredibly mundane. We put no effort into it. It happens every day a thousand times. We would never even give it a second thought, and yet we do it over and over again. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, getting revenge and forgiveness. Pale horse coming, and I'm gonna ride it. I'll rise in the morning, my fate decided. I'm a dead man walking. One figure of public forgiveness whom Michael McCullough writes about is Bud Welch. His 23-year-old daughter, Julie, died in the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 1995. Here's a statement Bud Welch made prior to the 2001 execution of Timothy McVeigh, the man responsible for that bombing. The first month after the bombing, I didn't even want Tim McVeigh or Terry Nichols to even have trials. I simply wanted them fried. And then I finally come to realize that the reason that Julie and 167 others were dead is because of vengeance and rage. And when we take him out of his cage to kill him, it's going to be the same thing. We will keep the circle of violence going. Number 169 dead is not going to help the family members of the first 168. You do talk about some amazing examples of forgiveness, of public forgiveness, um, one of them being Bud Welch. But I sometimes think that those kinds of examples that that do make the news, like the bombing, um, also exalt forgiveness as something that's really beyond the reach of most of us most of the time. You know, we kind of wish, we hope that we would be that gracious, perhaps, but it almost feels um, superhuman. Right. And if you look at Bud Welch and you look at that story from the outside and you ask yourself, how can this man whose daughter was killed in this terrible explosion ever get over his rage? We, from the outside, we have a really hard time imagining that. But if you look at the story of Bud Welch, actually what you find is he had a lot of help along the way. Hmm. And if you look at the story very carefully, you can actually learn a lot about how the human mind evolved to forgive and what kind of conditions activate that instinct in human minds. Because a lot of those conditions ended up falling into place for Bud. Mm-hmm. In fact, he, he doesn't talk about forgiveness, even for himself in that case, as having been some massive struggle. Well, it was an incremental also, wasn't it? I mean, it, it gets reported as an act, but in fact, yeah. it was a process. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And along the way, there were events that he actually made happen for himself that turned forgiveness into one of these things that can be easier. Um, for example, 
he actually sought out Timothy McVeigh's father and visited him one day at the McVeigh home and had this moment, he describes, when he saw Timothy's picture on the mantle. Mm-hmm. It was a high school graduation picture. And they were just making small talk. And Bud said to McVeigh's father, he said, God, that's a good-looking kid. And the tears just began pouring out of the elder McVeigh. Mm-hmm. And what he realized then was that here was another father on the verge of losing a son, losing a child. And that immediate experience of, of sympathy and compassion went a tremendous way in facilitating the forgiveness process for Bud. So right off the bat, this real human interaction starts to turn forgiveness from something difficult to do to something that's easier to do because this compassion has happened naturally in the course of real human interaction and then suddenly forgiveness is a little easier. So this is getting to one of the really important points I think you make with your work that if we can understand this forgiveness instinct and how that even understanding it in terms of evolution, that we can start to create conditions where it can be empowered. Right. The first is safety. Human beings are naturally prone to forgive individuals that they feel safe around. So if we have an offender that is apologizing in a way that seems heartfelt and convincing and has really convinced us that they can't and won't harm us in the same way again, okay, that's a point on the forgiveness side. The human mind evolved for forgiveness to be something worth its while. And any successful organism is unlikely to have a mechanism in it that says, you know, just keep stepping on my neck. It's okay, right? right. Right? But if you can convince me that you're safe, right, that I don't have to worry about being harmed in the same way a second time, maybe I'm willing to move a little bit forward. But it seems like that would be the hardest um, condition or assumption to put in place in the context of many of the worst cycles of revenge in our world. Sometimes safety comes through things like the rule of law, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes safety comes through you as a small business owner dusting off that employee manual that you don't think about anymore and, and asking yourself, what is in here that would instruct an employee on what to do if they were being systematically harassed by a coworker? And that if there was a real serious infraction, it would be dealt with in a way that restored that employee's sense of safety, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What can you do in your associations when somebody has a grievance? That when the neighbor has a band um, that he's hired for a party playing at 1230 on a Friday night, that you know how to make sure that doesn't happen a second time, right? So that you don't then have to say, well, I'm going to get back at that guy myself. I'm going to leave my garbage cans out all weekend long, which I know he hates, right? You're talking about revenge in in ordinary life, which is where where I think we're more comfortable talking about it in terms of (laughs) warring tribes across the globe. (laughs) Well, I can take it in any—I mean, the the thing I like about these principles is they're scalable, right? 
actually, usually people, when, when, when people ask me about the book, they're, they're actually less interested in the geopolitical stuff. Okay. Than, so, so, but I can, you know. Okay. Well, no, yeah, we'll get there. So what's the second after safety? Value. We are inclined to forgive individuals who are likely to have benefit for us in the future. So we find it really easy, as I was saying, to forgive our loved ones or forgive our friends or forgive our, our neighbors or our business partners because there's something in it for us in the future, mm-hmm. right? And the costs sometimes of, of destroying a relationship that's been damaged are just too high because establishing a new one is so difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So relationships that have value in them um, are ones in which we're naturally prone to forgive. Well, poor boys, the flaws red, started down the road, started down the road, all the years started down the road. Going out in this world, we'll buy the one and that'll be the way to get along. We had some fun when we first created this show a few years ago. We asked listeners to share their favorite songs about revenge and forgiveness. As far as we can tell, revenge seems to make for better music. Listen to the Songs of Revenge playlist we compiled with tracks from Johnny Cash, Justin Timberlake, Ani DeFranco, and the Rolling Stones. That's at onbeing.org. While you're there, you can also download my complete unedited conversation with Michael McCullough. Again, onbeing.org. Coming up, how the psychology and biology of forgiveness can apply to a noisy neighbor or to Joseph Kony in Uganda. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. Sweet forgiveness, that's what you give to me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, getting revenge and forgiveness. Michael McCullough directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory at the University of Miami. He understands both forgiveness and revenge as part of the birthright of the human species. And he's learning how we can calm or trigger either impulse. I interviewed Michael McCullough in 2008, as it happens in the midst of the last presidential election season. Let's talk about this in terms of concrete challenges, and we're in an election year. I wonder, as you watch that, um, what runs through your mind when you think about how we might come to any kind of resolution on some of these really intimate, difficult, uh, divisive issues? Uh, well, we do have a hard time seeing things from other people's perspectives, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we tend to view other people who have positions different from ours as having much more similarity to each other than huh. we do. We can see the, the great uh, variety in our own positions. Right? Oh, so but we can't we, see the variety in other people's positions. No, that's right. We that's tend to interesting. Paint, uh-huh. Yeah, we tend to paint them with the same brush. And so uh, we tend to really simplify positions that other, in, other groups have or people on other sides of positions. So we, we have a simplified view. We tend to actually uh, view them as more partisan and more extreme on average than the average really seems to be. And so so there's something about how the mind works and how it processes groups, 
right? When we think about people from over there, that other group, that kind of causes us to not really view them with the same sort of humanity that we uh, afford our own groups. You know, you think about an issue you feel strongly about and that you you know a lot about and you, you can say, well, actually, there's a lot of people who have sort of different views than mine. They're not exactly the same. And that allows you to view them as human beings, right? Right. right. Um, harder to do something about the limitations of the mind or perhaps because of how the mind was actually designed to work, we have a harder time affording that kind of benefit of the doubt to other groups. So if we know that, then if we know that you know, about ourselves, right? If we can have, an, you're saying, if we can get an awareness about that, perhaps that is a beginning. <laughs> then, then, then you can begin to say, well, they're just a group of human beings too, trying to muddle their way through a position that's going to work for them, and you know, maybe that kind of recognition of their diversity as well can can help. Then maybe we'll have less anxiety about interacting in a civil way. Hmm. You know, I mean, just to kind of go to the geopolitical level. You tell some stories about, um, let's say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, where you have, you know, cycles, generations of grievance and revenge kind of layered on top of each other. And um, and yet you tell stories, and we've all heard these kinds of stories, and I've met some of these people who are, you know, amazing, who have still moved beyond that in themselves, have reached out to people on the other side, have formed just what you said, have come to see the other group as human and have formed friendship. And and those kinds of stories don't tend to be in the headlines. I and mean, we hear the headlines of continued violence and continued animosity, right? Right. But um, from the studies you've seen or from what you know about how these things play themselves out in different societies, I mean, what does it take? Is it possible, even say in the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, that one day those networks reach such a critical mass that the balance is shifted? I mean, does it work that way? Um, how does that kind of collective change really happen? Uh, some of it happens when people become too tired to fight, hmm. right? Or too... Yeah, you tell that story in uh, northern Uganda, Right. You yeah. said there's an epidemic of forgiveness that's grown out of fatigue as much as anything else. That's right. That's right. Sometimes the costs of maintaining grievances are so high that individuals and group, their groups will decide that they've pushed themselves to the brink. They've demonstrated their insistence on defending themselves, and they've shown that they will defend themselves um, to the end. And having done that, it becomes possible to try to find a new way. Would you tell the story of what's happening in northern Uganda? Yeah. So Uganda has been at war for many years. And part of the strategy of one of the rebel groups, um, it's a group called the Lord's Resistance Army, headed by a man named Joseph Kony. Part of their strategy has been to abduct children, boys and girls, from their villages and from their tribes and take them off into the woods and essentially brainwash them. And right, but They've them... also had the children do horrible things, right, before they leave, killing their own siblings so that they can't go back. They f- they're so ashamed that their parents won't take them back, right? I mean, it's terrible. Yes. They, I mean, they, they send them back to kill their own families, right. to kill members of their own villages, their own tribes, to, to maim them, uh, to disfigure people unrecognizably, to cut off their lips and ears and noses. They give the girls as child brides 
to the soldiers. And through this really heartless, brutal tactic, you know, they do a couple of things. One is that they destroy the, the culture of these villages, the fabric of, of their, their own history. And they also create new foot soldiers for their army. Um, the costs of this have been so high, both from a security point of view and from a cultural point of view, that many uh, of the rank and file, just regular people living in Uganda, particularly this, this one group called the Acholi, have just simply grown so tired of these cycles of violence and um, their inability to solve them using military force that they've been really pressing the government to offer amnesty, official amnesty, not only to Kony, but they've been offering unofficial amnesty to any of the children, any of the sons and daughters of their own villages who've been spirited away like this and brainwashed and turned into killers. And they've, they've used radio programs, radio broadcasts, word of mouth, newspapers, really any vehicle they can get hold of to send this message out that if you will come back to your village, lay down your arms, meet with the elders, meet with the community, and work out a plan for demonstrating your your desire to rejoin us. We'll let you rejoin us as a member of our community in good standing. Yeah, and, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And they've been coming back in, in groups uh, as large as three, four, five, nine hundred, um, laying down their guns, working out plans for reparation, right, trying to find mm-hmm. some way to compensate victims for the harms they've caused. Um, at, at risk to themselves, mind you. I mean, these, these returnees now have to worry about these villagers' own desires for revenge against them. So they take a risk in coming back, mm-hmm. and yet many of them are doing it. And, and, and in part, it really is because there just isn't another way. Here's a Welsh ethnomusicologist, Peter Cook, describing how the very Ugandans Michael McCullough mentioned have integrated grief, outrage, and a longing for forgiveness in the music they sing. And their songs explicitly address warlord Joseph Kony. Now, it's very interesting. They live in slums around Kampala. What do they sing about? First of all, they preserve some of the songs from their village competitions. We are number one. We are the best group. We are going to win. This kind of thing. Secondly, they'll sing about this war in the north, how awful it is. But in the same song, when they're complaining that their women are raped, that their sisters give birth in the bush, and so on, they will say, Connie, come talk with us. Come talk with us. Let's get it settled. Otti, who's now dead, by the way, killed by Kony, um, come talk with us. It's time for peace. And this, these songs were being sung at the same time as a bureaucracy overseas was saying the International Criminal Court wants to um, arrest Cody and try him. There's a lot of forgiveness for the sake of um, a lasting peace and building one as soon as possible. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being. Today, getting revenge and forgiveness with research psychologist Michael McCullough. We replaced one of the truly awful dictators right. of the late 20th century when we removed Saddam Hussein. 
you know the story there. And yet, it is also true that when we did that, and particularly when we disbanded the army, we did away with the only structure that was capable of holding a lot of very old tribal and ethnic and sectarian grudges in check. Right. This is a really interesting point you make, that strong governments, um, and it cuts both directions, even repressive governments um, squelch or kind of take on all that revenge function, right? That's right. And yeah. so, and that helps me understand why sometimes when you have terrible regimes fall apart, the Soviet Union or or Saddam Hussein's regime, you, you then, but even even in South Africa, some of these d- rivalries, these kind of primitive rivalries, if you want to call it that, come to the surface. That's right. I, I like to ask people to look out their windows in their office or their homes and imagine what your life would look like if the police and the National Guard and the fire department and the paramedics stopped working tomorrow because of a natural disaster. It, People are hungry. People are uh, – they have needs. And um, how would you put security into place yourself? What you would do is you would probably find your friends and find your family and you'd circle the wagons. Hmm. So in terms of what average people can do in, in the course of you know, more ordinary lives, uh, let me ask you the question this way. I mean – how do you think you live differently? How do you conduct yourself differently with um, people you fundamentally disagree with on on important social issues, with irritating people at work? Um, how do you conduct yourself differently because of this, what you know scientifically and this research you do? The thing that, that I have realized um, is that many times if, if you've been harmed by somebody, you don't have any choice but to try to forgive it on your own because the person's gone, the person's dead, the person will have nothing to do with you. Um, There's just no bridge there. But in lots and lots of cases, forgiveness is just a conversation away. I mean, there are so many people, if you ask them about the hurt that they remember from um, junior high or high school, (laughs) what you often find is... There was never any conversation back with that person who harmed them. And so the conclusion I've come to is in many, many cases, if you want forgiveness, if you want to forgive or if you want to be forgiven, you need to go out there and get it for yourself. And the way you go out and get it for yourself is by trying to have the kind of conversation with the person you hurt that you want to have. In my family, we, we apologize about a lot. Uh, your apology is an important concept for you. You say that it really, even biologically, it's important for us. Apology is really important because when I apologize to you for something I've done, you see me squirming. Mm. (laughs) You see me uncomfortable. You see me trying to reassure you that I'm not going to harm you in the same way again. You see me giving you respect as a human being with feelings. And all of a sudden... I've turned on a lot of the slider switches that make forgiveness happen in your head. It's almost also that you've made it the next best thing to revenge. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's because fulfilled some you, of those needs we have. You, oh, there are so many people who, once they see someone who's harmed them, cry and experience shame and experience humiliation for, for the way they behaved, suddenly it's the forgiver who's doing the healing. 
right, who's reaching out to the perpetrator. This happens so many times. All people often need is this kind of vigorous conversation about the past. Now, this isn't this. If if, if this were so easy, people would have be doing it already. So, <laughs> right, right. so I don't pretend that. But but at the same time, I really think we can't lose sight of the value of kind of getting in each other's business a little bit and getting in each other's lives a little bit and being willing to try to make things a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit messy in the service of making them better. And I mean, again, when if you just read the headlines, you read about what's what's going wrong in the world today. What are the what are the worst, most entrenched crises? I do sense from your research where you kind of try to take a global view and look at civil wars that have happened in recent years that have been resolved. I mean, that you you kind of feel that there is progress, that on balance, there's more reconciliation happening. Is is that right? Is that? Yeah. I'm so optimistic about our future because if you again if you look at that long arc of history as you suggest what you see is for example the homicide rate we worry about the homicide rate as we should it goes up some years it goes down other years and and we we worry but over the long arc of history you take western europe homicide rates are a 20th and in some countries a 50th of what they were 6 800 years ago Right. So if we take this long perspective, what it seems to be happening is actually we're getting better and better control over human beings' potential for aggressiveness. And a lot of that homicide six, eight hundred years ago was, in fact, vengeance motivated. Mm-hmm. But, but when we get control of those instincts and we give people other tools to deal with their grievances, they will restrain themselves. So I, Iraq may look dismal to some. It's you know, been terrible for our, our country and the world in so many ways. And yet I see coming out of it, whenever that is, a society that's going to rebuild itself into a peaceful society. I don't know how long it will take. It's, not my, it's above my pay grade, as they say. But this is what societies tend to do. They tend to find the best way for, um, to rebuild in the aftermath of these kinds of collapses in ways that will promote cooperation. And you're really saying that it, on the basis of lots of research, aren't you? I mean, you know, it's not just wishful thinking. If you, I mean, if you put societal structures in place where people feel their rights are protected and they feel that they, they see a way forward for making a living in a, in a peaceful way and you put mm-hmm. incentives in place like that where there's security, um, they prefer peace over war mm-hmm. every time. So from all the everything you know, I mean what what feels really important for you to pass on to your children practically? I have a I have a four year old daughter who's um a little bit too young for this still, but with, with our with our seven year old, I really have tried to encourage him to be vigorous about acknowledging 
his mistakes and um, the harms that he causes his friends, whether that's just a careless word or excluding somebody from a game or whatever, because so much of forgiveness comes down to interaction. It comes down to knowing that an offender is not the person you thought he was when he hurt you or she was when she Mm. hurt you. Mm. It's changing that perception. It's simple things, but we try to teach him that what someone needs after they've had their feelings hurt. And we think if we can explain to him what what the mind needs after someone's been offended, then I, we can teach him how to be vigorous and not, not worry about having to look like he's right all the time right. or having to look like he's perfect or he ig- denying his mistakes. If, if he can own up to them, that that's a vigorous, healthy way to keep his friendships intact. Hmm. So, you know, I think a simplistic view, and you kind of touch on this in your book of what religion can do in terms of forgiveness when I look at all your research and have this conversation with you, it seems to me that in terms of where religion can play a constructive role in this, um, and religion is also often implicated in places where there's terrible violence going on, but perhaps um, not in the first instance teaching forgiveness, but some of the teachings that come out of religious traditions about caring for the other, about caring for the stranger. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of, the, one of the best things we can do with religious faith is give people an appetite for difference. And the major world religions all have the resources for doing this, Mm -hmm. for getting people excited about people who are different from them. It's not every brand, right, that exercises that prerogative. But in the scriptures and traditions of every every world religion that has been successful on a grand scale, um, there is a story there about the love of difference. Mm-hmm. And, compassion towards difference. Right. Compassion toward difference, caring for the strangers in your midst, mm-hmm. um, being able to see beyond superficial differences toward the essential commonalities. Right. Religion is uh, also good at appealing to people's meaner sides and uh, the, the more brutish side. And the resources are there for both. So it's really up to those people who have uh, a passion for reconciliation in their own faiths to make sure that the right tones are struck and the others are a little bit more muted. Something that I've been aware of also is that this word forgiveness, I think, has a really Christian ring in many ears. But I'm, I've been very intrigued at... Uh, you know, I remember speaking with a Holocaust survivor who said that, you know, for him, the word forgiveness just didn't do it. And it's, it has this cultural connotation of forgive and forget. But the Jewish phrase, repair the world, you know, compels him in the same way he feels the word forgiveness compels Christians. I like that. I like that. Um, I wish we could come up with a, a completely new word for what this this human trait is. Uh, other than forgiveness? Yeah, or maybe maybe find some new way to talk about it so that we can unload a little bit of the baggage from the past. Mm-hmm. Because some of the baggage is that it's sort of a, a namby-pamby thing that doormats do or wimps do or right. you know, only sort of milquetoast uh, types of people are interested in. But from everything I've managed to read and see and understand in my own work, it's that Forgiveness is a, a brawny, muscular exercise that I kind of imagine um, 
someone with a great passion for life and a great um, hearty sort of uh, disposition being able to take on. Wow. And you're, you really feel that it's essential to our geopolitical future, right, as well as our the health of our individual lives. It's just too important. Yeah, it's just too important. And, and the doors are open now. Uh, the doors are open for the use of this kind of language in the public sphere. Try to see it my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on While you see it your way Run the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone We can work it out We can work it out Think of what Michael McCullough is professor of psychology and a Cooper Fellow at the University of Miami. There he also directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory. His book is Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct. We end the show with more from our Revenge and Forgiveness playlist, including songs recommended by our listeners. You can hear all the tracks at onbeing.org. Being on air and online is created by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, Stephanie Bell, Anne Breckbill, and Susan Lean. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire. Trent Gillis is our senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett. That Earl had to die. Goodbye, On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, mathematics, purpose, and truth with physicist and novelist Jana Levin. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.